G'day, I'm Bevan Holloway. This is Read Me Write, and it's the final episode in this series examining the development of literacy and learning contexts driven by learner agency. In episode one, we found our theoretical feet, with reference to the learning dispositions, the story of self we develop, and the things we're driven by. We thought about all of this in the context of a trip to the beach. In episode two, we looked at the big data about literacy in New Zealand and examined what that suggests. My position, after looking at the data, was we need to consider more than achievement data, the effects stuff, if we want to develop people who want to read, not just can. Today, I hope to give you something concrete to think about in terms of adapting your practice to enable learner agency. It's the idea I have about the learning playground. I first fell into the idea of a learning playground thanks to a conversation during a critical friend group session I was part of at Wellington Girls College. It was during a time I was thinking a lot about play as a pedagogy, and I was grappling with the realisation that if learner agency was what I was after, I had to drop my notions about me being in control. But if I dropped control, what did that leave me with? Anyway, During the conversation, I was asked this question. What are you going to do about the student who comes but doesn't do anything? It's a simple but powerful question, because agency also includes that possibility, right? The power to do or not to do. Now, I could have easily brushed the question aside with thoughts like, well, they're secondary school students, They need to take responsibility for their learning, so it's not really my problem. Or, I really don't think someone will do nothing all year. Or, if push comes to shove, I'll just make them do the work, and they'll have to show some resilience in doing it, because this is school and not a holiday camp. But the question really nagged at me, until I thought, well, what would I do if a kid was at a playground and did nothing? And of course the answer is simple. If it's once or twice, maybe they're just tired and just don't feel like it. Which is fine. It's just how things are for everyone now and then. Isn't the issue if they come every day and do nothing? Isn't the answer in this case not to order them to get on the slide, but to sit down and say, Hi. Because if someone does nothing every day, something is up. And the only thing that will help with that is a relationship, not compulsion. And then it struck me. When designing for student agency, what I'm actually trying to do is create a learning playground. On a playground, kids are in charge and many things are possible. They have agency. The adults don't control things. But they can influence them. And adults do this through relationships, through noticing what's going on and responding with care. That's what I was after. Influence, not control. It was the missing piece. What I'll give you today is a framework 
that I found has worked in practice to foster learner agency, both in my classrooms and in the work I've done with other teachers. It's a framework that enables teachers to influence the learning without controlling it. It's the learning playground, and there are three steps to it, which I'll describe in terms of what you, as a teacher, do. Here we go. Step one, create a bounded learning environment. That's what the beach is, a bounded environment that influences the behavior, thoughts, relationships, and actions of the people in it. A Montessori teacher calls the environment the third teacher for this very reason. In creating a distinctive world, your learning playground will cue the ready disposition, just as anticipating a trip to the beach readies you to do beachy things. There are a few, there are a few elements to this bounded um, environment, so just bear with me here. In education, what can create the boundary? Well, there are three broad things to my mind, and the first are the curriculum learning areas. Now in my context, it was the English learning area. So what I had to ask myself was, what does an English learning playground look like? More detail about that is coming. But equally, uh, we could create a bounded environment around a theme or an area for inquiry or some form of artifact or process. So as an example of that, a school I've been working with took the inquiry approach and focused the inquiry on future design. Now, future design can be many things. It can be economic, it can be social, it can be environmental, it can be technological, it can be ideological, and it can be artistic. Now, that's a pretty broad um, scope of things that can be engaged with. The key was that the learners had the control to take future design in any of those directions. You could also construct a bounded environment around the interests you're seeing in the kids. Now often, particularly as kids get older, this takes the form of passion projects. And what older kids are often capable of is constructing their own learning playground focused on the passion. When creating the playground, you're wanting to create a world that looks and feels like what it might do so in reality. Now the beach is made up of sand, sea, sand dunes, driftwood, shells, and seaweed, among other things. Those are the things that make it unmistakably a beach. So, what are the equivalents for the learning playground you're seeking to create? In my English playground, they were things like word games, magnetic poetry, books, story building blocks, costumes, puppets, books, a nice place to read, poems, worksheets, books. And I've also seen things in other English learning contexts like old typewriters, post boxes, graffiti poetry, book displays, mini libraries, and school-wide literary festivals. Now, I wonder what a science playground would look like. And I wonder where literacy might fit in with it.
What experiences are part of your playground? At the beach, people can swim, make sandcastles, play in the dunes, walk, fly kites. This is the people-focused, relational stuff, where talk and shared experience happen. Don't be afraid to make these compulsory. They don't have to be, but there's something in a shared experience, isn't there? Now in this aspect, I think you want to think about stuff like trips. They're great for feeding curiosity, broadening horizons, and they can be as simple as a walk. Also guests. Who are the experts that can feed the passions? What are the community connections that are relevant? Are there any expertise around families in the room? And often routines can be a great experience to have as well. In my context, we would often start together in a circle where I would read to them for a short time and comment on what I found resonated with me. That was an invitation of sorts. Finally, anywhere you find people doing, you find tools for them to create with. At the beach, it's things like buckets and spades, bats and balls, boogie boards. At a basic level in a learning playground, it's access to stuff like stationery, pens, crayons, scissors, paper, play-doh, lego, wooden blocks, technology, cardboard, and any other loose part stuff you might stumble across. Now what you are seeking here is to create an environment that prompts curiosity, thus cueing the expression of the learning dispositions. But remember, this only works if students have agency, not just choice. Alright, time for step two. Notice. Stand back and observe the learners on the learning playground. Tune in to expressions of willingness. This step allows you to see your scope for influence. Now this can be really hard. Early childhood teachers are trained to observe, but no one else really. But you need to work on it. And you'll be amazed at what you notice when you give yourself time to observe and think. And if we think back to episode 2 and the reference I've made to the New Zealand curriculum, it's an observation that we find information for learning. It's all the small data, the really important stuff that helps you understand what a learner actually needs, not just what they're able to demonstrate. Thus, observation is a deliberate strategy to support learning. It's not time out from it. When observing, I found these as a useful guide. Listen to the learners to see where their curiosity is headed and where it could go. Consider the potential for where enrichment, enrichment lies. Become attuned to the zone of proximal development needs of the learners. When is their enthusiasm waning? That's often an indication they need a more knowledgeable other to appear. Who can be connected? What might be a useful addition to the learning playground? Who can't settle? Who does the same thing every time? Who's not do doing? And are you worried? In other words, is it a pattern? 
a really lovely question to ask is, what gift, perhaps of knowledge, maybe of connection, can I give that would lift what I'm seeing? Now, you don't need to run through all of these every time you observe. Just start by giving yourself five minutes to sit down and watch. See what you see once the urgent fades. Write a couple of things down. Try and act on one thing you notice, even if it's tomorrow. We know a great way to build a love for literacy is to connect books with what learners are interested in. So a response could be as simple as going to the school library and adding a book to the learning playground about something you saw a kid doing. Draw their attention to it if you need to, and that might include reading it to the class. The kid will notice that you noticed. I bet you. Step 3. Respond. Get involved with the learning, based on what you notice. Build the ability of the kids. Here is where you apply your expertise with the intent of making the learning richer. Many teachers find it hard to find their place when learners are in charge, and they often end up swimming on the surface of the learning, acting a bit like cheerleaders or timekeepers. It's always nice to let people know they're doing well, but teachers have more expertise and value than that. What you want to do is add richness to the learning experience. And teachers have many tools that can do this. Remember in episode 2 when I said I didn't think we're facing a wrong tools issue, but a wrong focus one? Any tool is useful if it's used at the right time in the right way. So, you can respond with any of the usual tools or strategies you know. The key thing is... Make sure you base its use off what you have observed and what your well-honed intuition is telling you will broaden the ability of the kids and make their world richer. This means you can model, explain, show how, scaffold, invite and provoke, describe, question, play with, Use direct instruction, or anything else you have up your professional sleeve. But the key thing is, and I'm going to say it again, you're using these tools to enrich the kid's world, not make the kid achieve. And that makes the world of difference. There it is. That's the learning playground in three steps. But what now? With the kids learning from home? Yes, indeed. Let's think back to episode one and the three things I said we need to be cognizant of when designing for agency. And that was the drive that everyone has for autonomy, mastery and connection. The kids have got autonomy in spades now. Equally, the pursuit of mastery is probably something you're losing control of. What you do have, though, is connection. That's your in. So the question to ask is, what mechanisms are you employing 
that allow you to keep in regular touch with your kids that aren't about the tasks you're setting. Because I think what you want is an insight into interest and willingness. Remember, that's where you'll find love. And love is what sustains effort over time. I would make the focus of my practice at this point connecting in a relational way. And through that gathering information for learning, being alert to the small data, all the stuff you get in observation. So I'd be wanting to know things like, what are the learners up to when they're not on apps like Reading Eggs? Is there anything they're proud of? What do they want to talk about? What are they reading? What's their favourite thing, person or place? I'd gather this information either via video or email. Perhaps parents might need to be involved, depending on the age of the kid. And I'd do this once a week. Then I'd ask, how can I make use of this information to feed the kids' interests, to make their world richer? Now this is where the power of the web sits, right? Once a week, I'd curate some stuff for them. I'd feed from the boundary, if you will. And that would be stuff like web links, either text, audio or video. And the web links would be done with the intention of building knowledge and feeding curiosity. I really like the New Zealand Geographic website as a tool for that. There's um, Storytime at Radio New Zealand that's got a lot of free audio stories on it, but just as equally... Um, a lot of libraries have a lot of ebooks that are free to download and easy to download at the moment. So perhaps you can tap into that source. But think, what ones might learners find relevant and enjoyable based on what you've found out about them? I'd be asking whether there's some skill stuff they might benefit from. Almost direct instruction type stuff. And I'd, my go-to here would be the Khan Academy, which is free. I'd also pose some wonderings to show my own curiosity about their points of interest and even possibly point out some books I'd read that relate to those things. I'd be trying to suggest where those interests could go though. An interest in the natural world can go far beyond science and into art, mythology, culture, economics, etc. I think it's worth putting those things out there for the kid to at least be exposed to those possibilities. And who knows, perhaps at the catch-up next week, they might feel the urge to show off something they've done in response. My mum always tells the story of what my paternal grandfather said to her the day I was born. Make sure you read to him every day. And she did. Isn't that where it starts? With love? Isn't that what opens kids to the world? That gives them the security to be interested in it and explore those interests. And by getting to know what those interests are, by feeding those interests, by exposing kids to books related to their interests, what happens over time is that they start to see what they're interested in is worth something in the world at large and, even more important, that their primary interest 
is not the only thing worth reading and thinking about. They see there are many things in the world that can be loved. Isn't this a core part of our role? To be open to our kids and what they bring. To allow love to come into the room. And that's it. We're done. I hope you have found this series thought-provoking. I've really enjoyed putting it together and I'd like to thank Diane and Colette of the Wellington Literacy Association for their support in the development of this series. In a way, they created a playground within which I've been free to explore these ideas and the podcast is a result of it. I'd also like to thank um, all the schools that I've worked with. You know who you are. And I'd like to thank you because you've really pushed my thinking in this area. The staff in those schools have had a real openness um, to having me alongside them in the rooms, but also the drive that you've had to put kids first has really inspired me, has kept me honest, and also added clarity to my thinking. I salute all of you. If you want to get in touch with me, please do. Email is the best option, and that can be found at bevan at smarter.co.nz. Smarter is spelt S-M-A-T-A. I'd love to hear from you. Farewell for now.